This is the first Sunday after Epiphany, and in, in the, a liturgical church, this is called also the Baptism of Christ, or the Baptism of the Lord. So I'm going to say some things about the Epiphany. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to say some things about Christmas, the Christmas cycle briefly, about Epiphany, about the Baptism of Christ, about Matthew's Gospel uh, version of the Baptism of Christ, and then a word about vocation, because baptism uh, is uh, one of the things that for Christian people uh, is the uh, provides the strength, the power, the stamina, the energy to fulfill our Christian vocation. So we might want to know something about how that works. Christmas time is the celebration of the presence of Christ to the church. And the four Christmas affirmations that I speak about every year, the goodness of our humanity, that each one of us can achieve the highest of our human potential, that it is possible for Christian people to be joyful, and that you and I need to be people of peace, is the gift that we, in the interior sense of the community of faith, celebrate uh, during Christmas tide, from Christmas uh, through the Epiphany, or the 12 days. And now, we take that presence and seek <clears throat> to make it manifest to the world. So, in Western Christianity, on the Feast of the Epiphany, we read the story of the visit by the three magi to the infant Jesus. And for us, that signifies on Epiphany the universal significance of the birth of the Savior, and that it has uh, a, a meaning and power beyond merely our own community of faith, and we celebrate that. The Eastern Church on Epiphany reads the Gospel about the baptism of Christ and they begin on Epiphany with the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. So we, in the liturgical renewal in the West a number of years ago now, 40 years ago or more, read the story of the baptism on the Sunday after Epiphany. So we pre preserve the hallowed tradition of thinking about the three wise men visiting the infant Jesus, on Epiphany, and then the Sunday right after, we speak about the manifestation of Christ through the beginning of his public ministry. You and I need to ponder and figure out how we make manifest to the world our greatest place of safety and assurance, which is what uh, baptism has something to do with. So four times a year, we believe, are the best times to do baptism in the church. The baptism of Christ, Easter, Pentecost, and All Saints Sunday. There are other Sundays we do it occasionally for what they would say are pastoral exigencies. <laughs> right? But those four are sort of the default times in the year that we do it that we baptize. And if we don't have any baptisms, then we renew our baptismal vows, because you're renewing them at a baptism, 
But if there is none, then we do the renewal of baptismal vows. So it reminds us of one of the templates that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, which is the baptismal covenant. And I say to you over and over again, on Ash Wednesday every year, I, between all the liturgies that we do here, I go into the church and I open a prayer book up and I read the baptismal covenant to myself and I ask as we begin the season of Lent, how am I doing? How am I doing with regard to this uh, covenantal relationship that we speak about that has something to do with baptism? As a footnote to this, you know, the baptismal covenant is not some, uh, it, it is embedded in the ancient liturgies of the church. But for a long time, particularly since the Reformation, and the Episcopal Church is a church that grew out of the uh, Reformation in, the, in, in Europe, uh, it's, it took a little different turn than the Continental Reformation did, but it was influenced by uh, the, that outlook. And as a result, uh, the idea of having a covenant with God about anything, particularly with regard to baptism, seemed to them to be a non-starter, right? But we understand that somehow, even though we maintain God's sovereignty, God's omniscience, God's eternal nature, that you and I are called to respond to the divine initiative begun in us, and for some reason, God, self-contained, needs us and made us and called us good. So we have a role to play in big and small ways for God's plan for the cosmos. And every time we do this, it reminds us of that, because through our baptism now, here's one of the things that happens. What Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. So I'm going to repeat myself later, but the words that Jesus hears from God at his baptism are now the words that get addressed to each of you. You are unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven by God. That's the starting place for how we understand who we are and what our vocation is going to be in the world. So baptism is a very important thing. It is central to our self-understanding. And I'm very pleased to, uh, to be a priest in the era where we have brought back to the center the importance and the power of baptism as not just being cosmic spot remover. <laughs> right? Which is the way a lot of people th thought about it, particularly in um, the Middle Ages. The, uh, here's, I might as well say this now. We baptize in the Episcopal Church infants and young children, and there are some Christian traditions that do not do that and believe in something they'll call believer's baptism or adult baptism, so you've got to make a profession of faith or you've got to get born again first or whatever you do. Then you get baptized. So you have to be of an age to do that. And they're, they're on some firm ground with regard to the ancient church because the, the normative age for baptism in the first three centuries or four centuries of Christianity was adulthood. But we believe that there is biblical warrant to baptize infants and young children because in the New Testament it says that the apostles and Paul and the other apostles 
uh, when they went into the various areas on their missionary journeys, they baptized households. And one presumes that in these households, you had infants and young children. And we wish to have them have the ability to share completely in the life of the church sacramentally and every other way. And it fulfills both the church's vocation to use everybody at every age and whatever level, and it also affords the opportunity to give the parents of the children the opportunity to say, you have given a gift to your children, which is this template that they lay over their own life, that even when they step away from them, they can always now return. And it is part of the way they can understand operating in the world, you know? Anybody who's been doing what I do for any length of time has discovered that uh, young people have stepped away from things and then one day, sometimes they come back and they remember, you know? My children have been receiving Holy Communion since they were infants. So they know for them it's extremely important. Let's talk about the gospel accounts of the baptism of Christ. Every year we read one of the stories of the baptism of Jesus from the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, synoptic being seen together, same sources, same stories, uh, very similar. So the first gospel is Mark's gospel. This is why it's important and I should say this again, you know, the, the, the Christians that compiled the New Testament canon, or the canon of the Holy Scriptures for that matter, for Christian people, uh, knew that in the biblical text there were uh, differences and disagreements. We don't have one gospel, we have four. And as far as they were concerned, it's okay because each one of them gives us a perspective on how the individual communities of faith sought to appropriate the mighty works of Jesus Christ to describe them and to give us some idea of how they were beginning to deal with the pastoral realities as the result of their change of heart and their desire to turn towards God and God's will and purpose for them. In Mark's gospel, the first earliest gospel, was written probably around 65 CE or maybe 70. The uh, story of the baptism is that Jesus comes out of the water and a dove lands on him and he hears a voice from heaven. Thou art my beloved son. With thee I am well pleased. It is an interior experience of Jesus for Jesus only. The people around him hear nothing. And so Mark is at pains to tell the reader or the listener who Jesus is and that this is the moment when he now begins to understand in depth what his vocation is going to be and he has received God's affirmation internally. So I would guess a preacher, when they preach on the Mark version, speaks about the still small voice that we all have that we know is not our own. Matthew and Luke have a different idea in mind because they wish the baptism of Jesus to be an epiphany, 
a manifestation of God. And so Jesus in Matthew's gospel, there are two differences between Mark's version and Matthew's version. First, there's an exchange between Jesus and John the Baptist where John the Baptist tries to get out of having to do this. And I expect the reason for this from Matthew's point of view is that this is something of an embarrassment to the early church or certainly to certain segments of the early church because why would this sinless man, very God of very God, need to be baptized for for the removal of sins and for repentance, right? But Jesus' answer in Matthew's gospel is, this is, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, bring you into this picture as, as God intended, and do this, and now we're moving forward. And it will become clear very soon in Matthew and all the gospels that after Jesus' baptism, his ministry is going to take a left turn from John the Baptist and his focus will not be on repentance only but it will be on the nearness of the kingdom of God and how the people of God model to others in the world the values of the kingdom of God and by virtue of doing that have a transformative effect on the way the world goes. My favorite phrase I say all the time, a society where it is easier for people to be good. So in Matthew's gospel, the voice from heaven, the dove lights on Jesus. He comes out of the water and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So everybody there hears it. And everybody knows who Jesus is as the result of this. And so this is the word to the church. And the reminder, well, if we understand, of course, as I said to you earlier, that what Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. In this sense, we are following the Savior. And in that sense, we now become grafted onto God. And we become, by baptism, what Jesus is by nature. We become through adoption and grace. So it's a pretty important thing that takes place, and the Gospels are at pains, in my view, to speak about it uh, in more than one way on purpose. But let me say something about vocation. Vocation comes from a Latin word, vocare, which means to call. I know when I was very young, even before I was an Episcopalian, vocation seemed to mean to people that I knew who belonged to other Christian groups, uh, the Episcopalians, the call of somebody to become a member of the clergy, or the call of somebody to become a, a member of a religious community. It had some religious implications. And one of the things that the renewal in the church has produced is an understanding that when we talk about vocation, we see that it is pluriform. So that when we get baptized and we understand our vocational responsibilities, it isn't merely to uh, be sort of exponents of a particular abstruse religious vocabulary. It's to do what I say all the time, become the best human being that you can be. 
and to strengthen your own vocation in whatever area we're speaking of, because each of us has more than one vocation. Don't we? We're members of a family. Some of us have children. We have a job or some sort of a thing that we do all the time, and we have responsibilities to do that in our vocation. One of the things about that is to keep up to begin to find the ways that we can pursue the excellence, to know that the Spirit of God provides us with the energy and the interior strength and stamina to be able to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of us. And so it doesn't mean just rededicating yourself to Jesus on a regular basis, although that's not an unimportant idea. It has to do with somehow rededicating yourself to what it is that made you want to do what you're doing in the first place. You know? Why did you decide to do this? And to see if you can touch those things so that uh, you're, you're reminded. And even in that process, that provides some sort of interior uh, energy and so on when you go through this. I can't emphasize this enough. You know, people just want to speak about these things in religious terms or say you've got to use a vocabulary uh, that speaks in this way. All Christian people have a vocation to affirm the vocations of others that are godly and good. And this means, without forsaking our view, that in Jesus we have found our greatest place of safety and assurance and that Christian people, officially at least, believe that in this man... In his words and in his works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God that he constitutes for us the unique focus of the divine presence that we can still affirm the truth that exists and is present in the other great faith traditions and to learn from them. I remember, you know, I read my office all the time, morning and evening prayer, and um, in one of the cycles, year A or B, you read uh, more than what through the book of Acts. It just seems endless, you know. You go reading morning prayer, you go read through the book of Acts. And there's this, I can't remember what it is, but there's this section in the book of Acts where Paul and some other people are, you know, they're on their missionary journey somewhere, and they were thinking about, Let's go to China. You know? It says in the reading, the Spirit told them, you don't need, don't go to China, go here. And I've always taken that to mean, or when, I, when it kind of popped in my head, was, well, China's fine right now. Okay? So, so maybe there's spiritual stuff going on there that they're, they're you got to go here. You know? So... I mean, Christianity did get to China. That's good, but it's not something that was sort of urgent. And uh, that, that seemed uh, interesting to me in one, in one sense. So our vocation is to sort of uh, be peacemakers with regard to this. We are getting into arguments now about stuff that it's, it's the same old, same old that comes up in one form or another, uh, in, in, even within uh, faith traditions like the Episcopal Church, and it's just a waste of time because we have other fish to fry. And whenever we don't do that, whenever we focus on uh, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever, you know, what, what Paul says, we actually make great strides uh, 
uh, in human relationships. So the Feast of the Baptism of Christ is about that. It's about how Christian people who are filled with the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen them, that they're able to make a difference in the world in big and small ways. So give thanks for that. And give thanks for the great gift that we receive at our baptism. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Amen. <laughs>